the importance of hurting the one you love. While getting writers to punch, shoot, stab, and otherwise rough up their protagonist can be difficult, there's something even harder to get them to do. Embarrass their hero. After all, a punch is a punch. It's physical, external. Once the sting fades and the wound heals, it's usually gone and forgotten. What's more, physical pain is something one can keep to oneself. No one else has to know. But to embarrass someone, that's public. Unlike physical pain, embarrassment says something about you. It means that you not only made a mistake, but that you were found out. Social pain, embarrassment, mortification, shame, lingers. The full measure of its sting tends to be felt afresh every time you think about it, even though decades may have passed. It's no surprise the word mortify originally meant to die, because that's often exactly what we want to do when we're embarrassed. It's also, it also tends to be the thing that best spurs growth. So it's a pity that embarrassment, mortification, and shame are the last thing writers want to put their protagonists through. We don't need to read Pygmalion to know writers and artists have a tendency to fall for their creations. So, without meaning to, they're always smoothing, smoothing the way for him, pitching softballs, sort of like an attentive director always making sure the camera only catches the star's good side. In real life, it's bad form to put someone in an awkward situation. Worse still, to then point the finger at him and make sure everyone notices. After all, it's one thing to fail in private and quit rather quite another to fail in the page on plain view. Like if John graduates from a prestigious law school, then fails the bar twice. And he's thinking, well, at least no one knows but me. Except when he's John F. Kennedy Jr. and it's the headline of the New York Post, which actually read, The Hunk Flunks. Failing in public is mortifying. But it sure triggers change. Whether that means adopting an alias and moving to another state where you can pretend you're someone else, or doing as Kennedy did and rising to the challenge. For the record, he stuck to it, passed the bar, and went on to win all six of his cases as a prosecutor for the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. Constantly upping the ante gets the protagonist in shape, which is crucial since the final hurdle he'll have to sail over will be impossibly high. Thus, the more you put him through before he gets there, the better. After all, as Emily Dickinson points out, a wounded deer leaps the highest. If you want your protagonist to be up to the test when he gets to that last hurrah, you've got to toughen up 
top and name up along the way. Keeping in mind that your reader must know what your protagonist's plan is before you begin to dash it, here's a crash course on how to torture your protagonist, for his own good naturally. 11 do's and don'ts for undermining your character's best laid plans. Number one, don't let your characters admit anything they aren't forced to, even to themselves. Remember when you were a kid and someone was trying to get you to do something you didn't want to do? You'd yell, oh yeah, make me. Well, in a story, when it comes to admitting anything ever, that's your character's mantra. No one in your story should ever divulge anything they aren't forced to, either by a gun to the head, or far more likely circumstances beyond their control. Information is currency. It has to be earned. No one gives it away for free. And everything has a price. Your protagonist needs a compelling reason to admit anything. It either gains him something or keeps something bad from happening. It's never neutral. Number two, do allow your protagonist to have secrets, but not to keep them. We have secrets for one reason, because we are afraid of what will happen. That is, change, if you are divulged. But that doesn't make it easy. A secret is the result of a struggle between competing parties in the brain. One part of the brain wants to reveal something and another part wants, does not want to, writes the neuroscientist David Eagleman in Incognito, The Secret Lives of the Brain. In fact, turns out it's unhealthy to keep a secret, both mentally and physically. According to psychologist James Pennebaker, the act of not discussing or confiding the event with another may be more damaging than having experienced the event per se. Thus, given how painful it can be to torture your protagonist, it's comforting to know that ultimately, forcing her to divulge her secret will actually be a kindness. You don't want her to have a heart attack from the stress of keeping it in, do you? So no matter how fervently she may want to keep her secrets close to the vest, you can't allow it. In fact, the more the protagonist wants to keep mum, the more the story will try to make her sing. And one more thing, don't keep her secret a secret from us. Let the reader in. We love being insiders. Our delight comes from knowing what the protagonist is holding back and why. We revel in the tension between what she's saying and what we know she's really thinking. Number three, do ensure that everything the protagonist does to remedy the situation only makes it worse. This is otherwise known as the irony factor. Remember what we said about the decision in one scene triggering the action in the next? This is how it plays out. 
ever upping the stakes, forcing the protagonist to re-evaluate the situation in which, with each turn of the screw, there are a myriad ways to up the ante. For instance, April is secretly in love with Gary, so she applies for a job at his firm to get to know him better. She's hired, and in Gary's department, no less. But when she shows up for work, all decked out in a new outfit she can't really afford, she discovers she's actually gotten Gary's job. He, it turns out, has been promoted and is being transferred to the London office. Or worse, he's been fired because her experience was so much stronger than his. Sometimes the irony stems from the fact that the plan works brilliantly and the protagonist gets exactly what she's after only to discover it's actually the last thing she'd ever wanted. In which case Gary instantly falls for April, sweeping her into his arms, murmuring that he loves her almost as much as playing World of Warcraft until dawn, which he'd do every night if only his mom would stop banging on the wall. Number four, do make sure everything that can go wrong does. But don't let your protagonist in on your agenda. Let him start out believing that he has to do is, that all he has to do is ask, and voila, all the riches in the world will be delivered by FedEx before nine the next morning. It's not that he's delusional, it's human nature. As we know, in order to conserve precious energy, anytime the brain can do less, it will, and we follow suit. In the beginning, no one ever spends more than the minimum effort required to solve a problem. But honestly, can you remember the last time the smallest amount of effort solved anything? In fact, it's practically guaranteed to make things worse, and hopefully in ways the protagonist never imagined. That's why we cringe in movies when the hero breathes a sigh of relief and says, well, at least nothing else can go wrong. Because we know that can mean only one thing. Now something really bad is going to happen. And usually it's something that makes everything up to that moment seem like a cakewalk. Number five. Do let your character start out, start out risking a dollar but end up betting the farm. Another interesting facet of escalating trouble that follows most protagonists is that although they begin by merely betting a lowly dollar, they tend to cower, whine, and fret more about that single dollar than they do at the end when betting the entire farm. For instance, in the 1986 John Hughes classic Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Ferris sidekick Cameron has never stood up to his father, a man who, according to Cam, loves his vintage Ferrari more than life itself, which is why he never drives it. But because Cam is a wimp, he can't stand up to anyone. He lets Ferris talk him into cutting school and taking the car out for a spin. Ferris assures Cam that afterward, they'll simply run the car in reverse to get rid of the couple of miles they'll put on the odometer. Cam wails and moans but hasn't the gumption to do so. To say no, rather. Naturally, instead of a quick spin, they end up driving around all day, racking up far more mileage than Cam ever dreamed, not to mention putting the car in constant danger of being dinged 
lost or stolen. Cam begins by whining, but as the day progresses and he finds himself in situations that force him to toughen up, he realizes he has far more grit than he thought, and that keeping such a magnificent car enshrined in a glass garage rather than taking your chances driving it is at best foolish, as is lavishing more attention on a car that you don't drive than on your son. Thus, at long last, Cam finally gets mad at his dad. Even so, Cam is a bit panicked when at the end of the day they discover, not surprisingly, that putting a car up on blocks and wedging the glass pedal down with the transmission in reverse doesn't in fact take the mileage off. Furious, Cam finally unleashes his pent-up anger by kicking the front of the car, denting it. Realizing now, he's realizing he's ready to stand up to his dad with a dissatisfied, rather a satisfied smile, he leans on the car, accidentally knocking off the blocks. With the racing engine, the second the tires hit the ground and gain traction, the car crashes through the garage's glass walls and sails out, plummeting into the ravine below. Which brings us to the fabled Aesop, who said, Men often bear little grievances with less courage than they do large misfortunes. And so, having learned to stand up for himself throughout the day, rather than accepting Ferris's offer to take the blame for the wrecked Ferrari, Cam digs deep and finds the courage to tell his father what happened. He is far less fearful of telling him the truth with the car in pieces at the bottom of the hill than he was that morning when the worst thing he thought he'd have to confess was that they'd put 10 miles on the odometer. <laughs>